Welcome. This is a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater living in Canby, Oregon. Greetings to you all. We all have been awakened to a brand new day filled with opportunity. I hope that your morning is going well. Today is May Day, Sunday, May 1st, 2022. The share ID numbers for Friday, April 29th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. weekday Big Book Study Meeting, 18904, 18,904, and 18,905, 18905. For the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Weekday Study Meeting. This morning, A Vision for You presents Chapter 3, More About Alcohol. This, uh, this may seem strange, but let us start right here. Just a chapter before. The second chapter of Alcoholics Anonymous, commonly known as the Big Book, is titled, There is a Solution, which talks a lot about the nature of the alcoholism, the ism piece of it itself. Even so, the author slash authors of this textbook could not have covered everything there is to say about the alcoholic's condition within a single chapter. There is so much to convey, so many variables and reflections to be done. This may be why the title, More About Alcoholism, is used for the third chapter to fill in some of those places of the head and the heart that hadn't been quite rectified and reconciled. This third chapter is longer than the chapters that preceded, but it is also highly engaging due to the many stories used to illustrate Wilson's point. These stories are to be relatable and true to life. These true accounts illustrate very specifically the action on the alcoholic left untreated, the mind, the disease left untreated. The Big Book challenges each one of us over again, including this particular chapter. The illustrations give three examples of the addiction in motion for our consideration, the way we think and the way we reason as an untreated addict or a treated addict. If anyone who does not agree with this notion of being a real addict, the author offers up a test, an experiment, so to say. Go ahead and try some controlled drinking, they say. See how we are affected when or if we stop abruptly. The authors commend anyone who can pull it off, but they also express great doubt that anyone will be able to attempt this feat if they are a real alcoholic for any length of time. And understand active overeaters at this particular point, but using the words of uh, uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as I was saying, the extra length of Chapter 3, in part, is due to the stories that give notable examples of an active alcoholic. The man of 30 illustrates the point well regarding controlled drinking for 25 years. Controlled drinking for 25 years. Let us try to control dieting for 25 years. Even 25 years sober means nothing if left untreated if you are a real alcoholic. He made up his mind. Haven't I made up my mind? Yep, he made up his mind to quit until he became successful and retired. He made that decision, gonna do it. It then continues to tell the tale of a man named Jim. Jim was a good guy when he was sober. He sought out AA but did not finish the work. Let me emphasize that. He sought out AA but did not finish the work. Stayed around, stayed in the rooms but did not finish the work the treatment for the disease. 
He left himself wide open. Here we learn again about the need for daily maintenance and the continuation of the work, the step work against the deadly twisted thinking. The big book enters into a comparison to a jaywalker to characterize the insanity of such behavior of these men. The alcoholic will often follow a similar tragic pattern. Promising, always promising to never do this again, those pie crust promises. The final story is about our friend Fred, also a very heartening gentleman and everything going for him. A happy family man who has achieved a fair bit of success. Fred believed that his drinking was normal. Fred believed his drinking was normal, except for, you know, a few things that might be troublesome. Maybe just this thing or that thing, but, you know, really normal. Therefore, he did not believe himself a real alcoholic. He refused to take step one because he had willpower. Hadn't he proved it before? It was proven that he had willpower. Hmm. Remarkably interesting examples. It is not easy to capture the layers of and details of the expression of this disease. And let us not forget the suffering. We always forget the suffering. We always forget the suffering. Thinking ourselves normal in some way. We forget the blindness to it. We can't see what we can't see. There is such a focus on alcohol, food in our case, with so much noise around this, the substance that we are taking in, the debate, the things that we're not going to do, we can do, the way we're different, that we hardly can identify ourselves as real compulsive overeaters. You describe the difference between the real, the real addict, the moderate, or the hard, the hard sort of user, since many of the indications have been confused as if they were the same. The countless conversations around eating and drinking that we have over and over again, debates, 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 distracting ourselves from the language in our minds that we use to tell ourselves that we just have not found that right food plan yet. Rather than understanding that, that, that the language is more accurate translated to say, I'm the real compulsive overeater. We didn't know the language differences. And therefore, how come we do not reach out for this program in its full for the treatment for the disease rather than reaching out for the food. Try to convince a compulsive overeater based on their behavior that a particular food is problematic, therefore allergic. Just joking, don't try to do that. (laughs) Our logic and our reasoning will only take us so far, but those of us who suffer from the disease of compulsive overeating and constant relapse will often make grave mistakes if we do not accept the true nature of our disease. If you have tried to solve the problem on your own and have failed repeatedly, we urge you to seriously consider the 12-step program entirely as a treatment for this disease. We also strongly suggest entire abstinence before you embark on the program of recovery. Pardon me. Learn from each other. Learn from each other what entire abstinence looks like and how it's different. How it's different for the compulsive overeater. Well, this is a touch of the summary of Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, coupled with editorial liberty. (laughs) But today, based on this chapter, we have a fellow brimming over with excitement to dig deeper into what this chapter is teaching. It is such an important chapter. Remember, each paragraph is a caution, a prayer, and a direction, and a guidance. She is here to, to open every page based on her own study, her own experience, and her own hope and promise of wisdom. 
Our guest speaker is one of us, the real compulsive overeater, living an absent, recovered life because of this textbook, which outlines the 12 steps of recovery through AA. A guide, a teacher she is, a mentor, and a friend who has given over her life to the service and well-being of the still suffering. You will find her deeply in service in and out of these rooms and supporting those on the path and her community and in her home. She is a loyal, loyal patron of a vision for you, and we rely on her heart, her wisdom, and her generous spirit very much. A vision for you is incredibly grateful to have her with us today presenting on this topic. So please help me welcome to the line this morning, Melissa C. to speak with us today. Good morning, Melissa, and welcome to you. Hi, good morning, Melanie. Oh, thank you so much. What a beautiful, beautiful intro. I, I, I love how you really um went through that. It was perfect. And um yeah, so my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and I live in New York and um I really am very passionate about <clears throat> what I've discovered from the big book, what what um this book has done for me. It really has completely transformed my life you know um i've told my story many times before but just to briefly summarize it real quick so i can delve into this chapter so you know that i really am the real deal um i have battled my entire life um food weight control management and i have thrown every human resource at this problem from the time I was a little girl. My, you know, my earliest memories are, are food-related, and um, and they're not happy food-related memories. I have lots of happy memories as a child, and I have lots of food memories as a child, but they're not happy food memories because every memory of food as a little girl was always a sense of longing for more. I never felt normal satisfaction from the food and yet I constantly looked to food to give me satisfaction. And so this disease, you know, ran ran my life. It ran me, um, and I gave it all my greatest attempts and efforts. And where I found myself listening to this meeting, I was um, regaining weight quickly. I had been over 300 pounds. I had lost weight. I was in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, half doing it, half doing it doesn't work for someone like me. And I picked up and I was in the midst of a relapse that was horrific, but I wasn't eating sugar, I would tell you. <laughs> and I wasn't eating, you know, I would list the things I wasn't eating as a testament for saying, see, I'm still sort of abstinent, but I wasn't. And my last binge, um, I ate until my mouth bled. And I knew I was crazy. Um, and I knew I was in serious trouble. And I had this fear that um, that I was dying. I, I was having panic attacks, and I thought, I think I'm having a stroke. And my next thought, I think was more frightening than that thought, was I think I'm supposed to care. And I couldn't summon up the energy to care, and yet I knew I cared because I had children and I had a husband, and I wanted very much to get better. And that's where I began really in earnest. So that's not the way I live today. I want to tell you that, that, um, yes, I am entirely abstinent. I have, um, happily released over 160 pounds. 
I feel really at ease in my body. I'm comfortable with food. Um, but I'm cautious. You know, I'm, I'm fully aware of what I need to eat and what I don't need to eat um, and, and how I need to live my life. And, um, and I love this program. I love the big book. I love this fellowship. Um, and so I want to jump into the chapter more about alcoholism. And I think it's, I'm glad that Melanie um, started with um, There's a Solution and really delved into that. And because there's no mistake that this chapter really comes sandwiched in between there's a solution, which tells us, yeah, there's going to be a solution for me, and then we agnostics, which really explains the solution, right? And so this chapter is important. It falls in between. And I think, you know, those of us that study the book know, just if I just read one little section from we agnostics, that this book is exactly about finding a power. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And I think that's important because more about alcoholism really could be called, you know, in my little shorthand, more about why I need God, more more about why I am crazy, and more about why I must have God. You know, more and more, um, it's going to go through story after story, and in each story, what is happening is that the doors that we thought might be the way out get closed. They get closed for me, and they get locked, so that at the end of the chapter, I'm left with only one door. That's the door to God, right? So page 30, if we're going to jump right in here in the first paragraph, tells us what our great obsession is, the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. So one of the biggest problems is that we don't think we have a problem. You know, in fact, we're persistent about keeping up this illusion. Despite the difficulties, you know, I continue to live trying to prove the false idea, the false idea that I don't really have a problem after all. You know, and we call this false ideas that we believe denial, right? That's the name. It's called denial. Um, you know, and for me, what was the denial uh, at that point that I was still abstinent? You know, that was like that I was still controlling this, um, you know, despite the fact that my mouth was bleeding. There was a part of me that was like, I, I, I still have control over this thing. Um, page 30, the second paragraph now tells us the first step to getting well, right? Here's the first step. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. You know, and in the doctor's opinion, we're told that we're a distinct entity, we're different from other people, that this allergy, right, this thing we have might be the manifestation of an allergy, and it 
differentiates us from the rest of the world, and it sets us apart as a distinct entity. And so my step one understanding tells me I have to fully admit to myself, yes, I have this thing, and yep, I'm not like every other person. I'm very different. So we have to know that we have to know this. We have to admit it. And the diagnosis has to come from inside. You know, which is why I don't waste my time trying to convince others that they have a problem. If somebody says to me, "Yeah, I think I don't think I really have that problem or I think I can control it." I might disagree. I might be looking at them thinking, mm, I don't think so. But out of my mouth has to be, you might be able to control it, you know, because we're supposed to let the disease do the convincing. The third paragraph now is going to tell us some characteristics of the disease. We're going to start really identifying what are the characteristics of this disease that we have, um, that I have. Well, it's permanent and it's progressive right? Forever, and it's getting worse. So here it says, no real alcoholic ever recovers control. In the grip of a progressive illness, it gets worse, never better. So here's my experience. My binges, they got longer. They required more food. They happened more frequently. Right? They lasted longer. I needed to eat more, and they were happening more often. So the time in between when I wasn't eating was getting harder and harder to tolerate. There was a time for me that I could binge, you know, and I could do it. I could like almost like plan it, you know. And I remember when I was, you know, young, like in junior high, I had a group of girlfriends. I had, you know, this little group of girlfriends, and we started having slumber parties together. And um, at these slumber parties, we would call them pig-out parties. I remember I had this group of my friends, and we would get pizza, and we would get ice cream, and we would get chips. And, you know, what would happen at these slumber parties was everybody would be picking out. I looked like I was normal in their company, except my friends would fall asleep, at some point, and I kept eating. Or they would say that they felt sick. I felt sick too, but that didn't stop me. You know, and and then what would happen was I was eating that way on more than just those Friday nights. You know, it, it would it would start during the week and it would last longer. And that's just one example, you know. At first we fit the binging into our lives. And then we try to fit our lives around the binges. And then really for me at the end, my life was only the binges. That the time when I got to live my life was, it was hard to live my life because most of my life was binging. Um, Page 31, the second paragraph. Here are some of the methods we've tried. And we're told that we can increase the list ad infinitum, right? So it begins to list the methods, you know. And and what are methods, really? Methods are what we use to manage and control something. You know, it's what we use to support our delusional thinking. 
That's what I use to support my delusional thinking. What was my delusion? That I can control this thing. And, you know, and for most of us here in, in Overeaters Anonymous, those methods are diets. You know, they're weight loss. They're weight loss plans. They're weight loss schemes. They're gym memberships. They were, in, you know, for me, insane exercise regimes. You know, and I, I think sometimes it's a good idea to list your own. You know, when I began to list all the methods I tried, what amazed me was how many I tried and how many I retried over and over and over again. And and what that really tells me is that lack of desire was never my real dilemma, right? I really desired getting this thing under control. And, you know, lack of information also was not my dilemma because I had a lot of really good information. I wanted to stop. I knew precisely the foods that were problematic. In fact, I probably could have told you at 10 the problems, foods, right? I probably could have began to list them at 10. Um, So I knew which foods were problematic for me. And all of the methods that I tried to control the quantity and can control the types of food I ate were extremely effective. Yeah, they were effective so long as I followed them, right? So long as I followed these diets, every diet worked. Every single diet I went on worked until the day they no longer worked, and then they never worked quite as well again. Although I have to say, you know what, I'm going to change that. The cabbage soup diet never worked. (laughs) And yet I kept retrying that because I loved the idea that I could eat a soup and get thin, right, and eat a soup and solve this problem. And, you know, what I actually find out is that my – I'm so smart. I, You know, I like to use logic for everything or so I think. And where this problem is concerned, I actually wanted to believe insane ideas um, if they were easy, you know. Um, so, you know, and what I would say about diets is that, yep, they work. They work until they don't work, and then they never work quite as well again, you know. And I was always trying to get back on that diet that I thought had been a success, you know, and what I say about diets is it's kind of like trying to fence a dog, you know, Um, and the dog just keeps finding its way out of the fence. You know, if you've got a hole in your fence, you can't keep putting that dog back in that same yard with, with the hole in the fence. And diets are like trying to fence a dog. You know, the other thing that I found, um, really incredible is how desperate I was, you know, desperate. Yet despite my desperation, here's the other thing about me. And if you're like me, you probably are the same way. I don't surrender easily. You know, I've got a really high threshold for physical pain. The pain that my body endured at over 300 pounds was horrific. You know, and I didn't give in. I didn't give in. I could increase this list. You know, it says ad infinitum 
forevermore. If I begin again to start thinking that I'm going to manage and control this thing, I could increase this list ad infinitum forever and ever and ever. If I begin to make attempts to control and manage, I may as well just keep adding to this list. In the bottom of page 31 now to the top of 32, it says, well, it's going to give us ways to diagnose the illness, right? We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic. But you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room. And in our case, you know, the refrigerator, right? And try some controlled drinking. For me, eating. Try some controlled eating. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you're honest with yourself about it. Well, can you control your eating? Can you eat the foods that are problematic in moderation? Can you do it consistently? Can you do it with a sense of peace in your brain? And by the time we get here, we know the answer. Most of us come in because that experiment was a disaster. You know, if I could have, I would have. Like, I love you all, but I would have found another way to spend my Sunday. If I could have, I would never have been here today. I just wouldn't have. You know, now the chapter is going to give us four examples to help us determine some things and to bring to life some important concepts. And the four examples are, one, the man of 30, two, Jim, three, the jaywalker, and four, Fred. So let's look at the man of 30. It's on the bottom of page 32. I can totally relate to this man. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control, whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to the belief, which practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. And, you know, this is an excellent example of the, one of the characteristics of this disease. Patient, right? Patient, this disease will wait it out. He'd stopped drinking for 25 years. He remained bone dry, it says. Clearly, he had exceptional willpower, and he was self-disciplined. You know, and, and why I say I can relate to this is, um, like him, I knew that food was a problem for me came into Overeaters Anonymous in my early 20s for the first time, and I got a food plan. That's what I was handed there. By the way, it was an excellent food plan because it didn't have any of my allergic foods on it, and, but I didn't follow the rest of the action. You know, I, I studied the food plan like it was the big book, and I stuck the big book in the draw. So I relied on my self-discipline, and I had ambition. 
And my ambitions at that time were I wanted to meet a man. <laughs> I wanted to get married. I wanted a good job, and I wanted children. Like I was like, I need those things, and my eating is in the way of those things. And you guys just told me what my problem foods are. Great, I won't eat them. And I did that. I, I can't believe that I did it for five years. I just put the food down. So I thought I had the power. And then, like him, <laughs> I fell victim to this idea that my abstinence, you know, was protection. That my, you know, self-discipline was enough. I thought I could make up my mind and then rely on my mind to stay made up. And, you know, and if we're addicted, we can't regulate and we can't control. And what happened for me was um, on my honeymoon, I looked around. I was a normal body weight. And I looked around on my honeymoon. I had been abstinent. I was abstinent at my wedding. <laughs> I was, I didn't need anything, you know, alcoholic. I was, went on my honeymoon and I looked around and I saw all these other young brides. I looked like them. I had a husband, I was in a pool, I was in a bathing suit, and they were having beautiful frozen tropical drinks, and I looked around and I thought, of course I can, of course I can, and of course I couldn't, right? I, I drank that drink, basically for me it's ice cream in a glass, and I could mark that day off on my calendar because the disease had been patiently waiting for me, Right? So here here he is, it says, then gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal, and every attempt failed. So what happened for me was I was having a great time on my honeymoon. I had no desire to stop on my honeymoon. It was excellent. It was fun, right? It was fun, I thought. None of my clothes fit me by the time I got home, you know, because that's, I'm not like a, you know, I'm not a lightweight either. When I, when I binge, I put on 20 pounds in a few days, right? Nothing fit. And I thought for sure that that Monday when I got home, I'd get right back on. And I regained all that weight within a year maybe. Um, I was morbidly obese again, Right? just like that, and I could not stop, no matter what. That food plan that had been my religion, abstinence was my God, the food plan was my religion, I couldn't practice that religion anymore, and I couldn't find that God. I just couldn't, you know. So what's the lesson here? Well, if we're planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. So, you know, in our program, we do say one day at a time, right? And that story really comes out of Alcoholics Number 3, where he sort of says, I can do this for 24 hours, right? But really, what does that mean? It means we live in freedom each day only taking on the exact day that we're living in. But I don't live in the delusion that tomorrow I'm going to have control over the food. I'm pretty certain that tomorrow 
If I'm the real deal, I'm just like I am today. Page 34, the middle of the first paragraph, says, if you're questioning if you've entered this dangerous area, what area? The area where you're unable to quit on your own willpower. Try leaving it alone for a year. You know, this is another way that we can determine if we are, in fact, powerless. We find this out not so much when we're having fun, right? When I was on that honeymoon, I really didn't know that I was powerless because I didn't want to stop. When you don't want to stop, you don't know that you're powerless. But we find this out when we want to stop and we find that we can't. I knew I was powerless when I tried to exert all my power and I couldn't do it. When I came home and I went to the supermarket and I bought everything on my abstinent plan and then the food rotted in the refrigerator and I went to McDonald's instead. That's when I knew I was powerless, right? When my car was like a magnet being pulled through the drive-thru. From this point on, the chapter more about alcoholism is going to try to help us determine if we can quit on our own or if there are, in fact, if we are, in fact, someone who's going to require something beyond human power. And it's going to do this by describing the mental states, right? So now on the top of page 35, it says, the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously, this is the crux of the problem, right? The crux of the problem is the most important part. So the most important part of my problem is my thinking, the thinking that precedes the relapse, thinking that precedes that bite. And it's going to do this now by giving us three more examples. So we're going to look at Jim, then we're going to look at the jaywalker, and we're going to look at Fred. And Jim, page 35, here he is. He's smart. He's likable. He has a beautiful family, inherited a business, yet his drinking was destroying it all. He was motivated to stop. He was told about alcoholism, and he made a start meaning he started on the road to recovery. His life started getting better. And again, right, here's the important part. He failed to enlarge his spiritual life. So he's one of those that started to get a little bit better and just didn't continue, didn't do the whole deal. It's a 12-step program, and he did part of the steps, maybe, right? So if there's any point that must be driven home, it says here that he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. We have to have a spiritual life, a spiritual life, and it must continue to grow. Remember that this is disease is permanent and it's progressive, right? So it's never going away and it's actually getting worse so that my solution which we'd been told in in there's a solution that it's going to be a spiritual one 
So my spiritual life has to grow. It's got to keep growing as my disease is growing. And I also want to drill the point that, you know, when Shim picked up in this story, I think it's important that he wasn't dropped and cast aside, you know. And the reason he picked up wasn't because he accidentally triggered the allergy. Sometimes that does happen. But this story is not an example of that. You know, here, like the man of 30, he was sober. You know, so my abstinence, although it's crucial, it's important, it's not enough. Remember, this chapter is going to be convincing me that I've got to get a God, right? More about why I need God. He picked up because he was not safe and protected. And we learned that the only thing that keeps us safe and protected is a relationship with God. Bottom of page 35 says he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. So they worked with him, meaning he was working too. You know, they didn't work on him and they didn't work for him. And you know, it's hard and uncomfortable when someone picks up. It's frustrating sometimes. Too. Like I have to be honest. You know, when people eat again and you're working with them, you know, I'm going to switch hats for a second and speak like as a sponsor or as like a fellow in recovery. Someone calls and they're like, yeah, I picked up again. And it's like, oh, you know, oh, it's frustrating. And, you know, um, And we know with this guy, he did it in rapid succession. Half a dozen times means six times at least. Boom, 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 there he was. And what did they do? Well, they asked him to tell us exactly what happened. And this is what we're supposed to do when a sponsee picks up. Don't just let them say, I ate off plan again, or yeah, I binged again, I picked up again. We're actually supposed to press them for the details. Why? Why? And we're supposed to press ourselves for the details because if we're we're trying to help them discover where they fell off track, right? Where that diseased thinking, where did the thinking that preceded the bite, where did it begin? So let's do it with Jim, right? Well, he had words with his boss. Okay, he had a resentment, right? Here he is, it says in this story. By the way, this was a business he owned, and now he's working for this guy. You think he wasn't ticked off? I'm certain he was, right? He had words with his boss, but he minimized it. He then went to a bar to get lunch and a customer. He was already in serious trouble, right? He needed anything other than that. And our text tells us, you know, we can go anywhere provided that we are in fit spiritual condition. But remember, it says he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. So he wasn't in fit spiritual condition. And we also know how do we get spiritually fit? Through work and self-sacrifice. Well, if he wasn't, 
at the point where he was helping anyone, right, meaning through the 12 steps, living in 10, 11, and 12, having sponsees, he didn't belong in a bar for any reason. That's that's my feeling about it. I would say if he wasn't helping anyone yet, then he was still in that hospitalization period that we learn about in the doctor's opinion. He didn't belong in a He doesn't belong in a place like that. And he's sitting there having sandwich after sandwich and milk after milk. He's looking. He's looking to get an effect. He's looking for something. And and here's where it gets clear that Jim has an alcoholic mind. In the middle of page 36, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, It couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed that I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. So this is a clear example of foolish thinking. We cannot rely on our thinking. We lie to ourselves and we believe it. The lie You know, why do I believe the lies? Well, because the lie is a creation of the one who's going to need to believe it, right? The lie needs to be believed by the liar, right? Bottom of page 36 to the top of 37 says, he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. So I cannot rely on my knowledge. I don't need more information. I don't need to be smarter. You know, I cannot use my thinking. And this is a crushing blow for a woman. I say I suffer. I don't just suffer from the disease of compulsive overeating. I suffer from know-it-all syndrome. I am the perpetual know-it-all. You know, I loved nothing more than sitting around having a good think. You know, I'm going to sit around and think about how I could solve my problems and fix my problems. And by the way, while I'm sitting and thinking about my problems, I'll do it with a bag of potato chips and a pint of Ben & Jerry's, right? I'm going to sit here and think about it. And, yeah, that doesn't work. I don't need to think anymore. The next couple of sentences helps determine and define insanity, right? Because we use that word a lot. We talk about like being restored to sanity. And many of us kind of like, oh, I don't like being told that I'm insane, right? But here it gives us the precise definition. And it says, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. What's insanity? A lack of proportion of the ability to think straight. That's what it is. It can't be called anything else. It says, how can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? So insanity could merely be lacking proportion, meaning that I minimize the importance of certain things and I make other things more important than they should be, right? And for him, 
what's the example here? Well, at that moment, he thought getting a customer for, you know, getting a customer was more important than his sobriety, right? So I can give you examples for myself. How do I lack proportion? Well, you know, if I say my throat hurts, right, I have a sore throat and I lack proportion, I would say things like, well, I'm going to have some ice cream, you know, because, my, listen, my throat really hurts and I need it. So I'm, you know, thinking that the disease of compulsive overeating, which I know I have a food addiction, is less critical than a sore throat, right? I'm saying, mm, sore throat is much greater problem than morbid obesity, right? That's a very simplistic example. Or here's another one, lacking proportion. If I'm more afraid of offending a host or looking a certain way to others because I have to eat a very specific way, I lack proportion, right? I know I have a deadly allergy. And if I lack proportion, I'm uncomfortable asking somebody what they're serving when they invite me over or maybe bringing my own food because I don't want to look, I don't want to offend them. So the possibility of offending these people are proportionately, in my insane mind, more important than a disease that's deadly. And if I think about it like this, I, you know, I'm a second grade teacher, right? So in the classroom, there's lots of kids with, you know, we, we see very common today kids with food allergies. And let me tell you, I know the parents, their kids who have a food allergy, they don't worry about offending me. They don't worry about offending anybody. They demand that there's no peanuts, right, in the classroom. They don't lack proportion there. Why? Because they respect the deadly Ill nature of that illness, and they respect the very lives that they're looking to protect. But I'm insane, right? So when it comes to me, no, I don't have that same perspective. I don't have that proportionate thinking. You know, and, and here's another example, right? Uh, thinking that candied nuts, right, and dried fruits, which I know are alcoholic foods for me, but I would go out to dinner, right? And if it's in a salad in a restaurant, you know, it's sort of like the whiskey and the milk. It won't hurt me because I'm in a restaurant after all, and it's just a salad, right? So, you know, thinking that I can uh, not trigger the allergy if it's buried in a salad in a restaurant, that's lacking proportion, you know, or how I don't want to look like one of those picky customers if I have to specify to a waitress how I need to have things left out of my food, right? That's lacking proportion. The middle of page 37 now is going to describe how consequences and sound reasoning are not able to help us. You know, we have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Okay, I, I like to I like to like envision things. Um, 
like this. I like visual kind of ideas. So I think if I envision it like a race, right, sound reasoning is racing against the insane idea, right? On one side is sound reasoning, and it's, it's versus the insane idea. They run neck and neck in this race, right? And then when propelled by my own human power, I am no match for the insane idea. It always wins the race. It's a patient adversary. You know, I say like sound reasoning can run a sprint, but insane ideas run a marathon. Remember, it can wait 25 years like the man of 30, right? So, and at the end, if I am relying on human power, insane ideas will take me down every time. Page 38, the jaywalker. What does this teach us? Well, you would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Okay, that, that in and of itself, what's it teaching me? I'm not normal, right? We can also learn that promises don't work. He made so many promises nor does being ridiculed, or he was ridiculed. Normal people can generally make promises and keep them. You know, in the doctor's opinion, where it talks about, you know, recovered people that you can rely on anything they have to say about themselves, recovered people have words that are reliable. But in the disease, no, I'm not reliable. I fail to keep my word. You know, if I'm still in the clutches of with the illness, the master, which is food, tells me to obey. And that's when I obey, in the clutches of the food. So I can't keep promises. You know, page 39, the actual or potential alcoholic with hardly an exception, will be unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. And now we're going to read about Fred to illustrate this point. And Fred is living a beautiful life, right? He's got a happy home, a great marriage, promising kids, successful in business and well-liked. And I think so many of us like to think that we're the Freds, right? I like to think that I was the Fred, you know, entirely normal in every respect, right? And so I think it's important, too, because we don't have to be living in a visible mess, right? You can present quite well. You can have no other notable problems. You know, I reached over 300 pounds, right? I have a friend who, um, you know, had to have... Uh, you know, a surgery on her esophagus because she did such damage, right? So we might share our experiences and people might say, oh, I'm not quite that bad. Well, you don't have to be that bad to have this. You can have happy home, great marriage, promising kids, successful in business, well-liked. You can present well. You can have no other notable problems except when alcohol, when food is concerned. And what happened was Fred that he wound up in the hospital and he was embarrassed by what had happened to him, right? I've been embarrassed. I was embarrassed 
you know, when I gained weight rapidly and my pants wouldn't zip. And he, but he didn't even admit what the problem was after all. In fact, he said that he was there to rest his nerves. He said he was depressed about his drinking. And so he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. He didn't believe he was alcoholic. So he had no step one, right? He never conceded to his innermost self he had a problem. And, well, and he didn't have step two for sure because he didn't accept a spiritual remedy for his problem because he didn't think he had a problem. Top of page 40 says he was positive that his humiliating experience plus the knowledge he acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it, right? And I thought that too. I thought I know a lot about my problem foods. I know a lot, right, about this program. I can just know it. I don't have to practice it. I can just know it. And, you know, um, we don't just study this book. We use it. We use this book. We apply it. Self-knowledge is not enough. You know, and we know that self-knowledge was a failure for him. And we're also told that everything went great with Fred. He exercised willpower, thought he could stay on guard. So remember, this chapter is about, like, closing the door and locking it on the things that we can't use, and one of which is willpower. Willpower, although it's a great... (laughs) resource for lots of problems it's an unreliable power source for this problem and for for someone like me and i'd say it has an unpredictable expiration date it runs out all of a sudden the willpower that i had is just no longer available and i say you know it's it's not like a carton of milk you know i've got a carton of milk in the refrigerator and it's got an expiration date stamped on it My willpower, I don't know when it runs out. There's no expiration date listed on that. It just, all of a sudden, you know, I go to use it and it's gone. And it's always at the times when I would need it the most, right? And and what's the problem with staying on guard? Well, who's the guard? You know, me. If I'm the guard... It's like putting the wolf in charge of gardening, you know, guarding a picnic basket. It's locking the door with the great enemy on the inside, right? I'm I'm the problem, so I can't fix this problem. I can't guard myself. You know, left to my own reasoning, you know, I want to like share this one little story that happened to me a few years back. I I was in an airport um, in a recovered state. And um, I have I have a very serious food allergy, and it has you know my my list of foods and things that I can't eat. They're 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 extensive. They're pretty long. <laughs> One of which is like anything with any kind of artificial sweeteners at all, like all sweeteners. Doesn't matter what it is. My tongue doesn't know the difference. My body reacts the same way. When I was in an airport, and by the way, I used to have a very serious gum addiction, like serious gum addiction. And my insane reasoning, here I was, I'm in an airport, I'm a recovered person, and I 
get in this airport and I think, hmm, my ears might hurt on the plane, right? I lack proportion in that moment. I think an earache is somehow more serious than my deadly allergy. And I went into the airport, you know, concession stand, and I bought gum. Now, here's how I know that I'm the real compulsive overeater. I didn't buy a pack of gum. I bought many packs of gum, (laughs) multiple packs of gum. And I put them in my pocketbook, and then, thank you, God, I don't know, I got this thought, let me text a dear friend in program. I need accountability. I I want to tell her that I've got the gum, and I'm just going to chew some on the plane, right? Because in that moment, I was the guard. Thank God I invited another guard in. And the most brilliant thing happened. (laughs) I knew exactly. Thank you, God, I reached the right person. Because my dear friend sent me a text back and said, at what altitude do you lose the allergy? And I thought, oh, crap. So I texted her back and I said, "Um, I guess I'm going to have to deal. I guess I'm going to have to suffer with the earache. And then she texted back, um, at what altitude do you lose your connection with God? Can't you just, can't you rely on God? And that's my guard, right? My guard was not my friend. Although my friend, what my friend did for me in that moment was she took out her flashlight. It was super bright and she shined it on the truth and pointed me back to God. And happily, I threw all those packs of gum away and I, and I took a picture (laughs) and I was like, gum's in the garbage. Thanks, friend. And I did not succumb to the desire. I, I do believe that my, I believe my butt was saved that day. I do. So, um, yeah, I can't be the guard, right? Um, in the middle of page 41 now, Fred's going to describe that experience of crossing the threshold into the dining room. And he thinks that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. And it's so similar. You know, I say this story is such a beautiful um, contrast, though. It's a painful contrast, but it's a very similar story to the story that's told in the chapter of Vision for You, where Bill has a similar thought that perhaps he could, you know, handle, say, mm, I don't know, three drinks, no more, right? And, but instead, what does Bill do? He recoils. And he made a call looking for someone he could help. And Fred did not. So here's Bill, right? The the contrast is in the vision for you, Bill, his business deal goes south, but he didn't drink. And Fred, whose business went off well, did drink. So I can pretty much say, that for me, this makes that old excuse of why I ate. You know, I ate because such and such went wrong. It's no longer plausible. It's not a reasonable excuse anymore. Because if I eat when everything is great, just like Fred did, and I eat when everything is going horrible, then my circumstances are really unimportant to why I'm eating. Right? My circumstances really have little to do with why I'm eating. So when people say, well, I ate because you know, because, um, you know, I was upset about my mom or I ate because I was, 
you know, angry at my boss. Mm, no. I ate because I was relying on human power, right? And it says again, here it says again for Fred, not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. And here's part of the insanity. We cannot protect ourselves from danger because the things that are dangerous to us seem harmless, right? Like me, in that moment, the gum seemed harmless. It seemed like no big deal, right? Although there was some little glimmer, I believe it was God, that said, mm, this is none too smart. It Maybe it is a big deal, right? Top of page 42, it's repeated again. Willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. And at this, Fred is crushed. You know, now, when two members come to see him in the hospital, I love this part. That, you know, it says that they're smiling. And, like, why are they smiling? Why, why would we smile when someone is crushed? Like, you know, are they sadistic, right? I think, like, mm, are they being sadistic? No, no. You know, we smile when people are crushed. Well, like them, they're there to help. And we learn that right in the beginning of the chapter that the full concession, that fully conceding before anything, before anything we must fully concede before we can do anything to help. And I love how we're being shown exactly how we carry the message. You know, every chapter for me is is not just a, you know, an experience for me as, as, as the addict, perhaps in the disease, right, throws the disease, but the addict who's looking to help another person. I get constant direction. So we're told here, how do we carry the message? They asked him if he thought himself an alcoholic and if he was licked. So we're supposed to ask someone, do you think you have this and are you crushed? And he said, yes, yes. And what did they do? They didn't start cheering him up. So we don't say to people, oh, great, now that you're powerless, awesome, everything's going to get better, friend, right? We actually tell the truth that this is a hopeless condition, and then we talk more about our own sufferings, you know, which is why, like, we're constantly telling our stories, right? Um, they told their stories. And once Fred admitted that he couldn't do it on his own, then they outlined the spiritual answer. So we don't jump in and outline the spiritual answer before somebody knows that they really require a spiritual answer. We have to know that we're all out of options before being truly ready to accept the spiritual solution. You know, our solution requires throwing some lifelong conceptions out the window, it says. And what this makes me think of is how, you know, my new set of directions, the new one that I get when I threw the old one out the window, it provides me with a new code and a new life structure and a new purpose. 
And I would say it's not easy. You know, it's definitely not easy to adopt a whole new set of guiding principles unless you're convinced that the ones that you had been living on were leading you to ruin, right? I was willing to accept these new guiding principles because the old ones were leading me to thoughts like, I don't know that I care if I die, right? That was crushing. Bottom of page 42 to the top of 43, here's one of my favorite favorite promises. Spiritual principles would solve all my problems. And I've since brought been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I'd lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. And I love that. That's his experience, and that's mine as well. Every single problem that I have experienced today can be solved through the spiritual course of action. For me, the steps are a pathway to God. And if you told me tomorrow that I could eat whatever I want and never have to do all the things that I have to do to live in freedom from the food and to live in this close relationship with God, I'm telling you I would flatly refuse the offer. I 100% would say, no, thank you. I don't want the ice cream. I would much rather live this life. My life is incredibly better for having been a compulsive overeater living in the solution, like by far. Bottom of page 43, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power, right? It's really clear. You know, this chapter, it closes the door on all the other solutions, one by one. It closes those doors. Door closed, door closed, door closed, door closed. And it locks them. For me, it locks them. And at the end, what I would say is, I'm left with two choices, really, and it's in there's a solution. One, I can go to the bitter end of my intolerable life, and I can try to blot it out with food. And the other one is to open up the door and accept spiritual help, right? You know, we're told the only thing that can save us is an act of providence. It. This is a program for people who must have a miracle. And I think more about alcoholism clearly tells me that's it. That's what my choice has to be. And I just want to kind of leave with this thought that those of us who have thrown ourselves 100% in, holding nothing back, 
right? Asking for this miracle, putting it all in that basket, right? Giving that entire basket over to this higher power have experienced the miraculous. It's happened for me. I have seen it again and again happen for other people. And I know that this works. And I'm here to shout the good news. This works. God is real. (laughs) This program is real. You can trust it. And with that, I will pass. Thank you very, very, very much, Melissa. Very thorough. The comparison to each illustration in your example and what you have gone through is really eye-opening, and it helps to identify. And you've given a lot of yourself today going through each one of those pieces, detailing and, and, and illuminating what it is that we are as compulsive overeaters, the real deal, and how that twisted thinking will think. Thank you very, very, very much, Melissa, for that. We will ask Melissa for her contact information at the conclusion of this meeting. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere and listen for that. The share ID number for today, Sunday, May 1st, 2022, is the following, 818-909-18,909. You want to make note of that. This is a very instructive piece here that we were just given this morning. Thanks again, Melissa, for that. Well, you know what? The lines are going to be open now for questions. If you have a question for Melissa, please press um, star one to unmute your phone. Offer your first name, the first letter of your last name. Once you've asked your question, please press star one again to remute your phone. It looks like the time will allow for probably four or five questions this morning. I'm ready to take some names. Robbie in Costa Rica. I heard Pete B. And I heard Robin. Marsha. I heard Marsha. Lee H. And I heard Lee H. Becca R. Becca R. Let's go with those for now and see what comes with time after that, okay? So I have Pete B, Robin P, Marsha, Lee H, and Becca R. Up first is Pete. Hey, come on, Pete, your question, please. Press a quick star one. Oh, my goodness. Sorry about that. Thank you, Melanie. My name is Pete B. I'm a compulsive overeater recovered today by God's grace and mercy. And uh, so, Melissa, that was super deep and heavy. I'm a big fan. Uh, but that's not the reason why I chimed in for the question. I thought I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I heard you say that the problem is lack of proportion with really, really good illustrations. Could you help me understand the difference between that problem and what I hear that the problem is the buildup of human emotions? Can you help me differentiate the two, please? Thank you. Okay, (laughs) Pete, with a hard question. Um, So I have great respect. You know, I have. I guess I have a difference of opinion. I I don't. um, I I lack proportion. Meaning, um, I believe that my emotions, right, are the governing forces 
of my actions. And I would say when I lack proportion, I'm living in, um, in my emotions as my guide rather than God and, and the directions as my guide. So um, when, I, when I'm experiencing an emotion that feels really heavy for me, um, I've got one solution, right? It's, it's I go to God with my emotions. I ask God, you know, I, I believe that human emotions are, are, are important. I think that's what makes me human. I think emotions are, are useful. I think they help me determine, um, you know, uh, some truths, but they can't govern. They're not my governing forces. So when I feel something deeply and it feels overwhelming and deep, and too much for this person, first I go to God and I ask God for relief, right? I ask God to help me. Of course, I do a 10-step. Um, sometimes there's, there's people that I need to sort of bring in there. If I have some harms that I need to, to correct, I've got some self-centered thinking or I need some, some new light shed on it. Um, and then oftentimes what I find I really need is, I, I ask God to help me tolerate the discomfort of my human emotion, right, to give me a little thicker skin to not be dragged around by my feelings. Um, thanks. I hope that helps. Pass. Thank you, Pete B., for your question. Robin P., your question is now, and then Marsha will follow you. Hi, Robin, your question. Hey, thanks so much, Melanie. Wow, thank you so much, Melissa. I always love hearing you. And- today was no exception. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for your gift. Oh my goodness. Um, so my question is, um, I have two questions. One, would you take us through your day spiritually, like how you start your day and end your day? And, um, also my other question is, I loved that you said that you, you need to detail with people what made them have a slip or, or go back out. Do you take them through, if they're in the middle of working the steps, do you take them back to step one, or do you pick up where they went off, uh, left off? Thanks so much. Woo, you gave, you gave a lot of, um, there's a lot, there's like two two questions here. So if I were to outline what my, um, I don't know, are you able to hear me Okay. Yeah, loud and clear. There's okay, okay, sorry. So, um, so first of all, my daily. What's my daily? I really I follow the directions in the book. I, since I am a woman that must have a relationship with God, first things first. First thing I do is prayer, right? First thing I do is prayer. Second is meditation. Um, you know, and I um, and I'm deadly earnest about it. And then I then I commit my food. <laughs> then I do my work with sponsees. I you know, I study the big book. I follow along what we're studying in this in this group together because this is my home group, and I love to study the big book. So I read and reflect on that. I work with others. You know, this this I don't live my program separate from my life. My program has completely married itself into my life. Um, so that's like that in a nutshell. Um, and as far as what do I do with people when they pick up, it, we really we delve in. You know, we delve in, and it really it depends on on what the issue is. I really look to help them identify what you know. Sometimes it really is like we go way back and we look way back, and 
um, you know, it's, it's, it's a case-by-case basis. The food's got to be down, though. We have to get, we've got it because otherwise, you know, here's the thing, right? We're told food is our master in this disease. Food is our master. And when I'm under the throes of that master, that master is in control of everything. And I can have no clarity, no peace, no thought until I absolutely turn away, refuse that master, and move closer to the real power source. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Robin P., for your question. Marsha, your question now. And then, Lee H., you prepare. You'll be next. Good morning, everyone. And, Melissa, thank you so much. I just drew so many gems from your sharing. Um, My question is this. You know, I've been in recovery. I've been in relapse. I have two teenage sons. And I just wondered how you have shared with your children about the disease. Um, My son last night, he's 13, he said to me, Mom, compulsive reading is not a disease. And I thought, wow, how does he still think that after all the conversations we've had? So I just wonder what you may share about that. Yeah. So my kids completely um, know. First of all, um, they know how, how I am about this program, how I am. I'm passionate about it. And, you know, they, they, my daughter has very clear memories of me beforehand. My son, not so much. And my, and my kids are, you know, if they – disagree that this is a disease um i don't think so i don't think they do but even if they do because i have other family members who do i've had you know um heated debates (laughs) with one of my brothers which is you know pretty funny this is the brother who i used to steal cookies from he you know growing up he hid all his bakery cookies underneath his bed um so i don't understand how he doesn't understand that it's a real problem and really what i what i have come to get is this the only person that really needs to understand is this one, is me. You know, it's not my job to convince them. It's okay if they don't understand it. You know, maybe they won't have to. I think what, more importantly, what I can do for the people in my world is to demonstrate how powerful this is, how incredible, you know, how I can practice these principles in all my affairs. I think that's far more telling to my children. You know, every time when I have made amends to them, when I have said, you know what, I, I, I apologize and I, and I hope to do better, they understand that this, this thing that I'm doing is no joke, right? And I think that's, that's a more important um, demonstration for them than, than my allergy, you know, than my food and what I might need to do. I hope that helps. Thanks. Pass. Thank you, Marsha D., for your question. Lee H., you're up now with your question. Well, good morning, Melissa. This is Lee H. from Tennessee, and I've, as always, I get so much out of your um, your shares. Um, and I had to laugh when you started t- talking about the gum thing um, on the airplane. I have had the exact same situation recently. Now, I have not thought of myself as a binger on gum. I didn't buy a bunch of, you know, packs of gum, but I did try to chew gum because the pressure was so big in my head. And I also have, you know, chewed gum to keep myself awake in the car because I do most of the driving. My husband 
doesn't, so I drive on trips. But um, my question is, is so have I relapsed? Um, let me let me phrase it another way. What is the difference when you're working with a sponsee in a relapse and then a revelation? Do you know what I'm saying? I sure do. I sure do. So it would depend. Now, if you have said that that particular food was a problem for you, then yes, that's a relapse. 